0: Hello, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd VanderWerf, the I in I Think You're Interesting. Sad to say, but another TV season has come to an end. That means a lot less now in the world of streaming and never-ending cable, but traditionally, the TV season wraps at the end of May. So, I thought it would be a great idea to sit down with three showrunners, all of whose shows I really enjoy, whose seasons either just ended or are about to end this week. Each of them is bringing fresh and engaging stories to the small screen. We'll start with Tanya Saracho. She's the creator and showrunner of Vida on the Stars Network. Vida is a wonderful half-hour drama about two Mexican-American sisters whose lives suddenly change when they're forced to come back to Boyle Heights, Los Angeles after their mother unexpectedly dies.
1: What's wrong with you? Our mother is dead. I know you and mommy had your, your whatever, your like disagreement. Disagreements. But can we just, Emma. Really? Emma, she's dead. Can that please override your cuntiness just while we bury her? After, we can both go back to our regularly scheduled programming of not talking, but for today, just... Please.
0: This is Vita's first season. It wraps Sunday night, and it's Tanya's first show as showrunner. But already, she's challenging traditional TV storylines. Vita approaches identity, queerness, gentrification, and feminism in an unapologetic way, It's a great show. I really love it. Everyone I've talked to about it loves it, too. And, you know, it's only a half hour long, so it doesn't take that long to watch. Salim Akil's my next guest. He's a longtime producer and showrunner. He and his wife, Mara Brock Akil, are a true TV power couple. They've produced shows like The Game, Girlfriends, and Being Mary Jane. Now Salim is the showrunner of the CW's Black Lightning. It's a superhero series that doesn't shy away from political and social storylines. You're
2: not going to tell me what this is all about? You have a good night, sir. I asked you a question. The liquor store just got robbed.
1: And I'm sure the description is what? A black man dressed in a suit and tie? Getaway car, a mid-sized
2: Volvo wagon!
0: have a good night, sir. So the hero on this show is a school principal by day and a crime-fighting superhero by night, as you'd expect. The character is played by Cress Williams. You might remember him for playing Scooter on Living Single. Black Lightning has gotten a really positive response from viewers. It just wrapped up its first season. Its second season will air in the fall. Aleem Brush-McKenna is my final guest today. She is a showrunner for one of my favorite shows, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, that also airs on The CW. The musical comedy just aired its third season. It's a show about a young woman who leaves her very successful life in New York to follow a summer camp boyfriend to West Covina, California. I use the term boyfriend very loosely. Is he here? He's not here. To be clear, I didn't move here for Josh. I just needed a change, because to move here for Josh, now that'd be strange. But don't get me wrong, if he asked for a date, I would totally be like, that sounds great. Did it sound cool when I said that sounds great? Okay, how about now? That sounds great. Yes, I heard of West Covina from Josh, but i I didn't move here because of Josh. Do you get those things are different? English. At the end, this test some different Look everyone stop giving me the shakedown. I am not having a nervous Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is a wonderful show that tackles mental illness. Indeed, in an early episode, the main character, played by Rachel Bloom, the other showrunner, flushes her medication when she decides to drop everything and move to California. The show also tackles the double standards for men and women in dating, and the annoying tropes in romantic comedies that reinforce those standards. And yeah, that might sound heavy, but trust me, it's hilarious. And uh, did I mention they sing, too? Crazy Ex-Girlfriend will be back in the fall to air its fourth and final season. And Aline, Salim, and Tanya join me next to talk about their shows, what it takes to be a showrunner, and what it takes to make the big calls and decisions. We're also going to talk about the future of television. Stick around, it's going to be a good one. My guests today are Tanya Soracho of Vida on Stars. Hi, Tanya. Hello. Salim Akil of Black Lightning on The CW. Hi, Salim. Hey, man. What's up? And Aline Brush McKenna of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend on The CW. Hi, Aline. Hi. Just to sort of start off, I'd like each of you to give me just the 20 to 30 second story of what your show is and uh, sort of why you love working on it. And we'll start with Tanya.
1: My show is Vida on Stars. It's about queerness and Latinidad and the east side of L.A., it is about two sisters that come home after their mother dies to inherit a building and a dying bar, and they also discover their mother was married to a woman, and then everything ensues. I love working on this very female, very queer show because um, I, I've got to build the inside and the outside um, just right, you know, so it's, it's been a joy.
2: Black Lightning is about a family uh, who are dealing with superpowers and most shows, they deal with them in a very positive way, but uh, we deal with them in a, in a more complex way, I think. Um, that's not to pat ourselves on the back. It's just a perspective that we took very early on. The reason I enjoy it is because I, I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell and Batman and, you know, all of those sort of comic book heroes. And it was a blessing to be able to bring Black Lightning to life.
3: Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is a, uh, what's fun about it for me is it's a deconstruction of tropes that I, in certain instances, have been working on in the unironic way for a long time. So, you know, sort of taking the piss out of romantic comedies and, um, you know, more conventional female narratives and sort of, which I've, and I've always wanted to do that and tried to do that and not been allowed to do that. And to sort of subvert those outcomes and get underneath what a rom-com heroine is or isn't and the trope of a crazy ex-girlfriend was attractive to me because it's obviously not a medically accurate term, but it's something that we say about women. Um, and then we kind of reify that behavior in romantic comedies and musical comedies where women behave in highly, highly irrational ways. So it's a way to get underneath that. And, you know, come to our set, we shoot our episodes in seven days and usually about two of them are spent playing music and dancing and singing. And so it's it's always a joyful place um, on those days, especially. That's a very joyful place to be.
0: And yet you don't sing.
3: Um, I don't, but I like to sing, but I don't sing well. Final sing, season's coming up. Sing out last of tune. <laughs> yeah, we have some surprise. Rachel makes me um, perform with her. So I do the, the Jap rap with her and I did it at Lincoln Center and I've done it multiple places with her. Then that's because Rachel thinks everyone is destined to sing. <laughs>
0: All three of your shows deal with uh, communities we haven't had a lot of storytelling about. We have uh, people struggling with mental illness on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. We have uh, a Latinx community on Vita and we have, you know, a a black family on Black Lightning. And I'm wondering, television, it seems to me, has traditionally been better at that sort of storytelling than movies, at least in terms of having more of it and more representation. Obviously, television is not perfect by any means. We're just saying it's better than the movies, which are lousy at it. How do you think that television has gotten better at telling these sorts of stories? And, uh, you know, where does it still have room to grow in that regard?
3: Well, you don't have to make money in the more traditional manner. I mean, television used to be really, really, really run by bean counters. And it was incredibly dictated by numbers and it's really because of cable and streaming have redefined what a successful show is financially. We were the lowest rated show on network television for a couple of years. Now I think we're maybe like third from the bottom, but um <laughs> but that's we we have we offer other things to the network besides strictly ratings. We wouldn't have made it in a, you know, 10 years ago. And networks really treat shows that have a more niche appeal completely differently and that's why they're making stuff that is you know, across the board, speaking to different types of audiences. And movies have gone the other way. They've gotten the bigger, bigger, wider, wider. I, I, I think that we're lucky that you can address different kinds of audiences and take certain artistic risks, and that has paid off for networks, and other networks have seen that work. You know, it's still it's still in progress, but I think you can see that there's a lot more voices represented at the moment.
1: There are a lot more. Well, I'm myopic about how I look at this, just Latinx, you know. We consume, uh, especially Latinas, consume, if you look at the numbers, more, like, especially movies than almost any demographic, especially young Latinas. There has not been a movie about a Latina, a young um, millennial Latina ever in Mm -hmm. the past, like, Decades, you know, I still don't understand. I'm trying to figure out why we've been so invisible and why we would continue to be. And in TV, it's better because we've popped up, especially in front of the screen. But behind the screen, out of 520 shows, we have well now five, with with mine, five shows uh, of a Latinx perspective, a Latinx gaze. But that's not, we make almost 20% of of this country up. Like, I don't understand why we haven't caught up or we, like, they haven't seen our value and stuff. It's the same Reason
3: that things are male centered because they believe that women will go see things with a male and protagonist yeah. and that, yeah you know, so they think that there's the protagonist bias only goes that in that direction. Right. And so.
1: But that's like becomes an know. erasure of a people yes. in a way. And it's like because then we're, we're not counted. Our narratives are not up there. So we still have these old 90s immigrant narratives that are so different and complicated now we're still going back like by mi familia and by selena and by la bamba it's crazy that those were the last big where's the wonder uh, woman where's the uh, yeah Yeah. i mean i know on tv it's better i think we still have a, a long way to go and it feels like if you look at those numbers it was like why why are we not valued you know like our our narratives and so i'm still like in that in that Space, Of course, stars has been amazing to us. I do think because my, my um, executive is Marta Fernandez, and she's Hispanic, and that matters because, like, you have to have someone in the castle to keep the door open, you know, and be like, come on. And I feel like that matters. But, like, if I look at the landscape, it's really bleak, you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Honestly, I think it's getting better because, you know, you're hearing more authentic voices. You know, black folk are writing and running shows about black folk before I would look at television I would say, oh, yeah, a white man wrote that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like anything black person would do or say. You know, it was always some guy with tennis shoes on running from uh, the police in a short jacket, Mm -hmm. you know, and his name was Willie Earl. You (laughs) know, when you have other people writing and you said gaze, gazing for you, then they gaze from their point of view. And so it's the gaze that usually makes them feel comfortable. I think what is happening now is that women and so-called minorities are writing things for themselves and for their people. And so it gets better and better and people become more and more interested. I'm not really interested in the concept of what the percentage of black folk are watching television in the United States because we're in a global economy now. So these images and these stories aren't just being shown here in America. They're being shown on phones and TVs around the world. I was in South Africa and Girlfriends and Being Mary Jane and the game was on television and people were watching them on their phones. And I guarantee you, Stars isn't just making your show to show in the United States, you know. So I think that when you look at how we're sort of uh, disseminating these images and these stories, it becomes less about what's going on in the ratings and less about what's going on in the United States. We're in a global economy now. I think the reason you're still having that conversation, of it's like an erasing of people, is because there's still the majority white men running these companies. And until there's more inclusion in the higher ranks, where you just don't have that one black spurt. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the right. woman or the man, right. or, you know, who's really working for corporate America and has no interest in fighting for you. But once we start to replace those type of people with people who really do have an interest in not only making money, but uh, telling stories about human beings, I think it'll get better and better and better. But as long as we have the majority white men running companies, it's it, it, it'll be a struggle. But it's a struggle, I think, worth having. I mean... When you look at African-Americans, we're, I always say, we're one, basically one generation up out of Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. And the things that we've managed to accomplish as a people on television and in politics, I think, speaks to the idea of struggle.
1: So the, a perspective and a perception is, um, a perception, I mean, is, is set, filtered through American television because we're selling it. Or, well, we haven't gotten that many shots. To yeah. to do it, well, you know? also
3: they're 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 weirdly um, immune to actual data because y- if you look at Wonder Woman or you look at Girls Trip or you look at whatever, and then it's like it's still seen as an outlier. Right, people right, still right. don't identify, and it's because we need to wick people into the system more, just from a creator standpoint, but also from an executive standpoint. After a certain level, it really becomes very homogeneous group of people, so people can rise to a certain level, but in order to get kicked those four or five levels upstairs that you need to be to be a real decision maker. We, there aren't, there is no diversity there. Um, But one of the things that I'm very concerned about and is getting people to come to this, the best and the brightest to come here and stay because you know, the, the entry level jobs don't pay anything. And if you're a smart kid and you're, you know, from a different kind of community and you graduate from a good college and you could go get a consulting job and make a good living, why would you come here and so the only people who come here are people who can get checks from their parents to help them survive. And so we're doing a lot of things, creating a lot of barriers to entry for creators, um, which is why it's it's not you have to go grab people and pull them in and help them. You can't wait for people to apply and show up. And so there needs to be way more people just sort of as writers, assistants and staff writers and you know, who are going to have that idea. And it's we're we still have a lot of invisible barriers to entry just to get people to get into those jobs and then to
1: support those as they go up. Because like when I was staffing my and I, I told you before I was in all Latinx writers room. It's like everybody's Latinx. The upper levels they they there weren't that many upper levels. They were it takes all working, a while. But but we have the, the diversity higher things. Right. And people uh, repeat that. So like a lot of the people I was meeting, it was like, oh, I've been a staff writer four times because they keep I keep being free to shows. Right. Right. So they 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 keep keep
3: stuff where like if you're a woman and your ass gets grabbed on your first three jobs or you're a black writer and you are in an environment where you're the only one there and you're being spoken to in a certain way and people don't understand your experience, you're like, you know what, I'm going to leave. I don't want to stay here. And it's just creating shows just creating shows that can incubate a, diff, a new generation of people is going to be enormously helpful because Shonda, because, you know, people who get these opportunities and can become, you know, the sort of the, the biggest people, the biggest money makers in their field, we got to bring them in. And I, that's something that I, that we in this room can actually do, which is just find kids and say, we're going to help you. We're going to find a job. We're going to, we're going to connect you to other people in your community and when you're treated in a way that you don't, and also to speak up. Like, you know, when I go to a meeting and there's not enough women there or not enough people of color there, just saying, we gotta do better, guys. We gotta do better. You know, like I go to meetings and people say, oh, I don't, I need a female director for this movie, but I can't. You know, I've sent it to um, Catherine Bigelow and Ava DuVernay and they said no, and I can't find anybody. And I'm like, I have a list. I have a list on my computer. And I always say, go to Netflix to your favorite show. And see who the directors are and you will find an amazing group of people who are maybe not the obvious people, but we gotta do a better job of just getting people in and the ground floor. But you're it's very, very challenging that once you get over like president of studio or president of network, mm. that room is <laughs> Yeah. There's, there's nobody in it who...
2: But it'll change. I mean, yeah, it'll take, it, it, yeah. It'll take a moment. Yeah. But I'm, a, I'm I'm a firm believer in a beautiful struggle. And I think it's a beautiful fight to be in. And I think I've seen certain amount of change o- over our career, you know, in terms of, you know, black shows used to be like a genre. <laughs> you know, it's like literally. Right. I remember when one of our shows got canceled and I was up for a few jobs. And there was only one black show on. So I was up for some jobs directing white people. And, you know, the response was, well, you only directed black people. And I'm like, well, (laughs) fuck, I'm not directing dolphins. (laughs) These are human beings and I'm telling stories. But, you know, not too long ago, it was literally a genre, the way that they were looking at it. And I I don't know if that's the case now. I don't believe it is. I don't think that Black Lightning, the only genre it is, is a superhero
0: show. But time will tell, you know. Time will tell. Yeah. Tanya mentioned uh, the idea of uh, diversity hires, which is a lot of networks have uh, programs that they use to promote underrepresented voices. And then essentially they provide writers from those programs, two shows for free for a year, I think. Um, And then after that, the show has to re-up them. And often those people aren't rehired. So that kind of dovetails with another conversation we're having about like, how do you change that executive culture where it's a lot of white men? So how are you finding people that sometimes are harder Uh, voices that are harder to find that aren't as well represented within the system. And then how do you have those conversations about, you know, to your bosses about like, well, this also needs to change at your level. This also needs to change in the agencies, you know, people that you don't have any impact over hiring. I think it's like Tanya said, you know, it's, it's, they're not hard to find, Mm.
2: I mean, like you said, I mean, you I, we were, want to find you him. have to want to yeah. find them. I, well, I went,
3: so I went to speak at a college and there was a kid who asked me, you know, you, Q&As are always like, it's just the worst. And, but there was a kid there who asked me three or four questions that were like the best questions I've ever had a young writer ask me. So I went to the professor and I said, who's this kid? And she said, he's my best writer. And he actually won the screenwriting award that year and i've been trying to get him a job at at an agency so he can come out here and be a writer and get started. it's little things like he doesn't have any money he's saving money to work here he can't come out here to interview he doesn't have the money to fly out here and he can't leave the job that he has to to do it but that's one of those little and like barriers to entry but i would just like on an individual basis try and like i have a right i had a writer who's going to be a a, an assistant who was going to be our writer's assistant and i I connected her to tanya's and you have a group that is for latinx writers and she got staffed this year and i just you know we we all the group of people that runs shows can have an enormous impact in drawing people in and they're they're not that hard to find
1: um it's getting. It's at the upper levels getting people uh, approved. Like, so my cinematographer had never led a unit, but she was Latina. She was so talented, but if she didn't, you know, get an opportunity, she. I don't know when she was gonna. She was just gonna keep doing second unit. That took stars being like, okay, all right. We'll put all that money and equipment and and people you know um because untried right but then same thing untried so like it also takes them being like i found the person that is right for this you just have to have faith in that and put you know back it up and hopefully next um season if they're gonna be all latina directors right that have um television experience some don't so you are going to give them the first shot the, the way Ava has been doing and stuff so I I do feel like you have to just but then the your network or your studio has to like stand behind you and be like okay they're untried but you know I, I, but that's the only way that a, a lot of people especially in these positions um are going to you know get in the door
2: I mean Mara did that with Ava right like, when right. when she was at Girlfriends and we did that with Kenya, Kenya Barris. We, you know, these are the, the sort of, to your point, the sort of people that we've groomed to come out of mm-hmm. our sort of our camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Kenny Smith, Hale, uh, you know, they're all now running shows. And I think ultimately what you have to do is just stand your ground.
0: So we're here to talk about show running in this era of peak TV, writing in the era of peak TV, uh, doing everything in the era of peak TV, you know, there's this New York times report that game of Thrones is going to have 15 million an episode for its final season. I'm assuming none of your budgets are 15 million an episode, but even in that case, like you can see where they have to kind of like cut corners on that show to like make things to save money for the big battles and things like that. So when you confront these questions on your own shows of how are we going to make our budget stretch as far as we can? Like, what are those conversations like in this era of, you know, everybody wants more money and, and nobody has it?
3: Well, we do musical numbers. I mean, we would love to have multiple locations for them so that we can cut between them. Um, so, you know, like sometimes it's scripted to have three or f- three or four, and then by the time we're done, it's someone playing a ukulele in an office. <laughs> um, because we – so we very much um, – plan for like this is an expensive x in fact on our writer's board this year i have dollar signs on the expensive episodes um and little circles on the ones like so we like you know spend a lot here save here we know in advance we'd like to do something big and fancy here and so that means you know so planning in advance is a big help and then also not spending on things that are um That aren't giving you a lot of value you get very value oriented over over time in terms of like what what actually gives you value on screen but you know uh game of thrones they block shoot everything because they write everything but even when we've block shot like in in inside episodes it's very hard to like keep track of what you're doing and make sure that everything lines up so i'm very impressed with them that they block shoot they do everything in one country, then everything in another country, then everything in another country for the whole season. That's that's a very high degree
1: of difficulty. I have a little small show that doesn't have, you know, <laughs> musical numbers or superheroes, you know. We mostly like walk and talk and boil heights, you know. Um, but I because they wanted, uh, stars wanted it to go so fast and space is at a premium right mm-hmm. in the city. We just um, took a 99 cent store and made it into a bar in two weeks. And they knew if you get a second season, we're going to have to get a soundstage. Now it's because it's so porous. It was so porous. It was like the street was right there. Real people were walking by. It was like we were shooting a, an indie every day, and it won't be like that next year. So I'm I, because we because they said, if you if we do continue this, we cannot continue this because you have to pay 20 people. Off, all the neighbors and stuff you have to you do every time we're there so yeah. it costs so much money wow. um so they they said this year <laughs> but then <laughs> you ha- we have to make it sustainable so i think um if i'm getting the second season i think i have to like buckle up and figure out how to use that sound stage
0: salim how about how it?
2: it's just planning it's really looking at how many episodes you have what you want to do with those episodes um this is the first time that i've done a lot of VFX and so it really takes knowing where you want to go with the season so I sort of start at the end Mm -hmm. and work my Mm -hmm. way backwards to the beginning and so uh, like a lot of people here I can sort of identify those shows that are going to cost me a lot more Mm -hmm. Uh, we do a lot with the music as well so I have to sort of um, calculate You know, what songs I want to use, when and where. So I think that the best thing you can do is plan and know where you want to go and so that you can sort of um, maneuver the money. Mm -hmm. I like maneuvering the money. So if I overspend here the next episode, I'll cut back in some areas. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we try to do on our show is we're mainly a, a family drama. But we have these things that we have to do with powers. And I'm always surprised. I, I write stories and my, my right-hand man always says, you know, these people have powers, right? Yeah.
0: <laughs>
3: you like, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, right, right,
2: right. Some, some shit's got to shoot out of their hands, right? I mean, my bad, my bad. So it's great I love
3: Cress. I've been a fan of Cress's for a really long time. We did a pilot. I did a pilot 20 years ago. yeah that i we took him to the network and we it didn't end up working out but i've just been following his career since then because he's so
0: talented
2: and talented he's actually a really good human being
3: really really nice guy yeah Yeah. Uh,
0: cress williams is the lead of black lightning Uh, and what i like what you said i like that about the show is that you could feasibly do this show a workplace drama about a high school principal with kind of a messy personal life and like have no superpowers and it would still work but the superpowers, you know, <laughs> that kind of well, that's the thing I wanted to ask about. Uh, you know, you're mentioning, you've all mentioned like you kind of plan, you try to plan as much as you, you can, but the thing about making television is plans inevitably fall apart. Things go wrong. What, what's your strategy for dealing with kind of those high stress situations, just like to keep yourself from, you know, dissolving into a puddle of anxiety and fear.
1: Witchcraft. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. I brought in a señora. This is real. A señora um, to bless the set, to bless the um, the when we started the writers' room. I don't know. I maybe placebo, but I I feel like spiritually we all have to like be in the same, you know, because it, shit's gonna go down, and so it's gonna happen. So you just have to just deal with it the best you, you can.
2: I think too, with the amount of experience that I've had, it sort of like. You just roll with it, right? You know, it's you know things are gonna pop up. You try to sort of diminish the opportunities for things to pop up by staying ahead of of everything. You can't stay ahead of everything, but with experience comes uh, knowledge, and you can use that knowledge to sort of put out fires in a way that is not overly destructive to this to the crew or the actors or the story. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, I I think dealing with so many different entities, the studio, the network, for me, DC, you know, and other partners, it, it is sort of, to your point, a Zen moment. I have this little app that's called Calm. Oh, yeah. and, I, <laughs> and I just yeah. turn on the, the thunderstorm in, mm-hmm. in, in my office and listen to it really loud and close the door. <laughs> but uh, I think with experience, you just sort of it, com- it becomes less of a, a shit show and yeah. more of a I can I can deal with it.
3: I have a thing when directors come in, I say, like, there's just no there's no reason to yell. And there's no reason to run. I don't want to see anyone running. If you're running, I'm going to assume that someone's in physical peril. And there is a thing where like people use production as sometimes as an excuse to be hysterical because they want to be hysterical. Um, And we're in our fourth season. Those people have basically shaken themselves out of the show because I really value calm, and I I really value like if you have an issue or something, you can always step to the side. Um, But you know, every year. I have to kind of renew those conversations or find people who seem to still be struggling with that concept and have that conversation because, you know, as you said, things are going to go south, but if we're already south, we have nowhere to go. So I like to start from a place of like, we're calm, we're making a television show. We don't work in a uh, paramedic, you know, we don't work in an emergency facility. Um, we We don't need to make things frantic before we even get going. So if you start from a place of, calm and perspective. And and one of the things is this, it's it's good to hire people who have thriving personal lives, because they want to go home and they they don't tend to create drama in the workplace because they want to go. So that's just something that I look for is people who are not living completely for their work, because they can be very, um, they want to be those sort of um, pyromaniac firemen, you know.
0: Well, Aline you just mentioned uh you know people who uh treat things uh, as much bigger situations than they necessarily are and one of the offshoots of that is we're in this moment where we're having kind of a conversation about abusive behavior and extending that to people who are unnecessarily cruel let's say people who uh take out their negative emotions on others usually through some form of verbal berating um and i'm wondering you know when you're on a big production when you have a lot of people like how do you find ways to try to keep that off your set how do you find ways to keep your set a friendly place um because inevitably there are going to be times when people have bad moments or have bad days and and do things like that what are those conversations like how do you try to keep your sets um good workplaces i guess i think it's
2: lead by example it starts at the top you know I, i think to your point, you have to have that that conversation very early on in the season. Mm-hmm. Hey, look, everybody here has a title. Those titles should be respected because people have worked hard for those titles. But the people who wear the titles, you have to say, I don't expect you to wear it around your neck. Mm-hmm. And no one has the right here to speak to anyone in any sort of negative way. Now, in this business it happens and because everyone's being creative and when you're creative you feel like you're judged and no one wants to be judged no matter if you're the gaffer or the dp or the set designer or whatever so there's always this heightened emotion that's going on with everybody because they feel like they're being judged so there's going to be those tense moments but in some tense moments comes you know really beautiful creativity so you don't want to stifle it. It's just a matter of being able to have a debate or a disagreement and respect each other in the debate and be done with it after the debate and the decision has been made. Uh, so I think it's starting at the top and setting a tone where people are free to express themselves, but not, so, not in a way that's damaging.
3: The challenge is, though, you, you can lead by example, but what I also learned is you have to create an environment where people can come to you there's an overstated adherence to hierarchy i find on in, on shows and in sets and sometimes i won't find out that someone's causing a problem till too many episodes in and it's if i'm not standing there and i don't see it and also people alter their behavior when i'm there i'm always you know, trying to say my door is open come in if you have any issues yeah. to really but encourage you're the
2: showrunner and that's not going to work and so you really do have to hold the people responsible right that should be telling you what's going on because I do the same thing. I actually leave my door open when I don't have my calm app on. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, yeah, try and get
3: people to come in and talk to you. And then it also, it requires a little bit of like going to craft service and making your coffee and being like, Hey, how's it going? What's up with this? Or noticing, or, you know, you're in in charge of any proceeding. And I, I, the one thing I, I have bristled a little bit with lately is people saying that like if you're really talented, you have there's an exceptionalism for you. And it's the one thing I've always hated about Hollywood because you know, when I was a screenwriter I'd be sent in them into meetings and be like, This director's a big swear words.
0: Yeah, you could fucking, <laughs> yeah. fucking asshole. He's a fucking asshole, but he's he's line. really
3: brilliant. <laughs> Um, And so I just have been in too many work settings as a screenwriter where the whole thing is organized around someone's awful personal deficits, and it's not necessary to be creative. And, you know, once you've worked with people who are very creative and are lovely and you realize it's just not – we have to stop making exceptions for people that we uh, deem talented, and I think we've seen across the board that that's, that's an issue.
0: Hey, everybody. I hope you've already heard that our sister site, Vox, just launched a show on Netflix. It's called Explained, and every episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one important topic. If you're looking for something about pop culture, there's one about K-pop, which explores the surge of pop music coming out of Korea. And this week, our topic is cryptocurrency. I've seen this episode. I love it. I think you will, too. It does a great job of answering the question, why are people betting on cryptocurrency? Explaining what cryptocurrencies actually are and how they work, breaking down the history of currencies and how cryptocurrencies fit into that, and explaining why people love digital cash, you guessed it, for illegal stuff. It's narrated by Christian Slater of TV's Mr. Robot, and that is just amazing. So go find it on Netflix. You can search for Vox or go straight to netflix.com slash explained. I do kind of want to talk about genre, I guess, because you're all in very distinct genres, a superhero show, a musical comedy, and people are acting like the half hour drama is this new thing. but It's, yeah, really it's happened before. So. Um, and Vita is a half hour drama. So tell me about like, uh, the joys of working within a genre and having sort of those tropes that you, you have to hit. And then also like, what are the frustrations of like, uh, we have to have, you know, a musical number or something or we have to have a superhero fight or something like that? For me, it's been great. I mean, I'm a big
2: fan of Joseph Campbell, Mm -hmm. so having read his books and then being able to sort of deal with the idea of a hero, a reluctant hero, a father, you know, someone who's connected to the community, it really allowed me to sort of express uh, a lot of things that had been going on inside of me as an artist. You know, me and Mara had been doing some of the shows that she wanted to do, and I had been running the company, and so I would sort of stepped out of movies, stepped out of sort of developing a show for myself. And this was a great opportunity because one of the things that I said when we struck the deal with Warner Brothers is that I wanted to reintroduce a certain type of black male into the television landscape. And Black Lightning, Jefferson Pierce and his family was the perfect sort of vehicle for me to express myself. So in that regard, uh, doing a genre, superhero, whatever you want to call it, was great because I took a different perspective on it. You know, I didn't do an origin story straight out. Uh, I did a story about a a man who was really reluctant to do this, but came out of retirement because of his, to protect his daughters and, and realize that he did have a gift that maybe he should be sharing with his community and the world. And I think for me, it sort of was able to sort of wedge myself and my personality into that, because I often think about my Talents. I do have, I do have talents, and I want to be able to use them for the benefit of the people. That's just, you know, the the sort of uh, lineage that I come from. I can't ignore that because I'm not at a place where, in my mind, I can be frivolous with my art. Mm-hmm. So I have to make certain points. I have to do certain things, and so this genre allowed me to do that in a way that I think was inclusive. I could have the fanboys and the fanwomen. I could have black folk, white folk, everybody would put their attention on this and you would either accept what we were saying as truth or some semblance of truth, or you would reject it. And so one of the first scenes in the, in the show is this black man being pulled over by police officers and having to make a decision. I can use my powers and I could fuck them up. But as most black men have to do, he had to sort of uh, suppress his emotions in order to live through that moment and so I wanted to examine that from the perspective of what would a, a superhero do in that perspective from that position there's also in episode 11 a moment where he's been arrested and set up and he goes to jail and he gets strip searched and they do a cavity search and he could, literally bust himself out of that. But once again, black men, women, brown men, women have to make those decisions every day to suppress their manhood or their womanhood in order to get through a moment and survive that moment in order to live another day. So to have this genre, this superhero, and to be able to express it in that way to me was an amazing opportunity.
1: Early, early on, they gave me license to not be funny in this half hour. Mm -hmm. And that's good because i I'm not that funny when my stuff, but I, you know, there's, there might be like, huh? Humor like, huh? Like that, but not, <laughs> But huh. You're so funny. But it, I don't know what happens. <laughs> no, no, it's just like, they said character half hour and I was like, oh, okay. And so then it's like, they give me license to just get in there. And i so they didn't like the word dramedy, which also gave me some kind of license, like. That it didn't have to do this this thing, like, right? Because it's like this half hour, this type of half hour transparent. Atlanta, yeah. it's like being defined right now, but we nobody has the right like language right. for it still, you know. But then that was freeing too. So like, I love the two sisters and and my show. They, I've never seen such flawed, ugly millennial latinas on television that are so like episode after episode. Maybe they're not redeemable. Maybe they're not watchable. <laughs> Good, but hopefully they're compelling. Because we haven't gotten a chance to do that. We, you know, we got the maid narrative down. We got the, you know, like the like Chola narrative down. Th- those things have been allowed to us. But like now getting to do these really complicated g- girls that are not nice girls, like that that is empowering just because it's, it's like all of it has been really freeing. And then. Being able to build the world, especially in a queer way, you know, the the queer and cast with queer people and directed by queer, you know, Latinas. All that has been very empowering because it's just like we are at the helm of our narrative and that that doesn't happen, like you were saying earlier. So, like, for me, this this genre has it's like it's still being defined and it's it's freeing.
0: Mm. Actually, I I read a a book, The Oral History of... um Angels in America. And there are all these people talking about, uh, you know, the show's breakthrough in terms of talking about gay issues of talking about uh, AIDS. And there are some folks in there who talk about how actually what was interesting about it was that it was the first time gay people were allowed to be like, Terrible yeah. people yeah. in the story, and like how freeing that was, and that's interesting to me. But so
1: something happens, sorry, to the culture when you are allowed those narratives because you, you no longer have to be an archetype. That sometimes we want to keep the like we overcorrect only want to play really good girls, and that's not real either because you can't really be fleshed out human beings until you do it all. So yes, I feel like um, in different timelines of, of of culture, you've been able to be like, oh, that's when this shifted. Uh, And we were able to really see them as full, you know, flesh
0: human beings. Alina, do you have thoughts on this genre?
1: Well, that's I mean, I always say the last
3: the last barrier for women is getting to play assholes. And, um, you know, I think Liz Lemon and um, Hannah Horvath and characters like that really led the way in in certain respects for sort of unlikable female characters, because that was a that was a yoke I struggled under for a long time was. What men think is likable is a huge thing when you're writing movies, especially um, comedies for women. But our show is all about genre and it's about um, romantic comedy tropes and musical comedy tropes and deconstructing them. So that's really most of what the show is about is sort of taking received narratives and putting a heroine inside of it who can't make any sense of them and who's literally trying on different you know, she's this week, she's trying to be a pop star and then she's doing a musical and then she's doing, you know, um, she's a a witch. She's trying to find what pop culture role suits her when they're all not quite really made for real people. And then the men also are sort of laboring under like, you know, high school quarterback and, uh, you know, overlooked best friend and everybody's sort of struggling with their trope. And the whole idea of the show was, you know, if you take Paula, who's like the Rosie O'Donnell best friend, but what is that person really? What are they really like? What does their internal life look like? Because programming for women, especially in terms of love stories, romantic comedies, musical comedies, the messaging is pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I've never connected to a princess narrative in my life. I don't, it's not a thing that I relate to, but they're really powerful narratives. And I certainly related to like marriage comedies and my favorite movies from the thirties and forties, the women are extremely emancipated, but somehow the end always ends up with them being like bopped on the head. A lot of what we're concerned with is sort of taking those tropes and, and turning them on their head. That's like a huge part of what we talk about in our room is sort of what are the received. And it's a genre is great because it gives you a backbone to work from. It's, it's harder in a way to kind of stake your own ground genre wise. And when you're working inside a genre, you can find these sort of like real life parallels and speak to them in a, in a way, in a more direct way, because it's sort of coded and, and, and lives in a world of metaphor. So some of the things I I love the most are things that are actually firmly like killing Eve, which I'm sure most of the people in this room have been watching, you know, it's a thriller, spy, murder mystery kind of, thing but inside of that there's just a lot of content inside of that that there's a lot of things they're exploring inside of a genre
0: and it's interesting because that show killing eve hit like hits all the tropes you expect that story to hit but Mm -hmm. in such an interesting and new way that you're like i don't care that this is doing exactly what i expect but no
1: it's it's actually makes it more fun yeah yeah. Well, it's not sometimes because the, the woman is holding the gun. And in a way, the serial killer, like you said, she gets to be an asshole. She's an it, asshole. Oh, both of them are. Right. Like, they all yeah. are. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Saw a finale last night. <laughs> i <It made sense. laughs> yeah.
0: I want to talk a little bit about creative partnerships because, Salim, you you work very closely with your wife, Mara Keel. And, uh, Aline, you work very closely with Rachel Bloom, who I keep wanting to call Rebecca, her character on the show.
3: <laughs> you're not, always the ol- you're not the only <laughs> one. We have a our gag reel every year is a lot of people calling Rachel Rebecca. Or Rebecca,
0: Rachel. So I want to talk about how you make those partnerships work, um, especially like when you're working within a marriage and then also being business partners. I'm always interested by that. Well,
2: you do it delicately. (laughs) 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 Well, you know, first of all, more than, you know, wife and marriage is such a, you know, they're small words compared to what the experience actually is. And uh, I would use friends. And you know we're we're really friends, and I know this word is used a lot, but we're also kind of nerdy geeks, and so we enjoy what we do. And we had a, we have a few rules, and one of them is that when we cross the door at home, we don't discuss work. You know, it's I th- and I think we're kind of ninety eight percent successful with that, which I think is a good thing. I think the other thing is if it's a project. For instance, you know, Mara has a project. We have a project on OWN coming up called Love Is, and that's her project, and I give notes. I'm very passionate about how I feel about it, but at the end of the day when she says, okay, enough, it's enough. She's the boss. On Black Lightning, it's the same way. She gave notes, and when I say, okay, I'm good, then Mm -hmm. I'm the boss. And so when you set boundaries Early on, I think it, you're able to operate within the framework of those boundaries pretty easily. And when you like each other, you know, it makes it really easy because you want to you wanna sort of bounce things off of each other. The, the great thing about having a partner like that is that oftentimes when you're successful at this level, whatever you do, most people are going to say, that's great. That's just really good. And so you need at least one person that you can give your material to, and they say that you know what you can do better, mm. or that shit you, you really are <laughs> you got lazy on on that. Mm. You really need that, mm. and to keep you fresh and to keep you grounded. And I think for me, those are the most important things because the creative aspect, you know, we'll get in a car, we can break a show, you know. In, a, in an hour drive. That's yeah. that's not the challenge. The challenge is just making sure that you respect the boundaries. Mm. You don't take ownership of each other or the project and uh, respect each other as well.
0: Mm. Aline, tell me about working with Rachel.
3: Well, it's just, it's really fun. You know, I don't think that for us, like being partners defines us. It's, it's on this project and she, you know, comes from Doing her videos and sketch and writing for Robot Chicken and doing musicals and writing musicals and being a performer. And I come from really, you know, writing movies and stuff. So we we have very different background, we're different ages. And for us, it's kind of fun to bump up against each other and our differing sensibilities. And then, you know, the the process of making the show is very stressful for both of us in in ways that, you know, as the showrunner, I have a lot of responsibilities. But Rachel is, you know, writing the songs helping out with the writing of the show, collaborating with me on the co-creation of the show, singing, acting. Um, She also supervises the edits of the music videos. That's really her area of expertise. Um, You know, one of my jobs, which I wouldn't have in a normal in, in any circumstances to like protect her health and welfare and make sure that she's not exhausted or stressed out um, and try and protect her as much as possible And so I surrounded us with people who help with that and make sure, you know, that they know when Rachel's not feeling well or is exhausted or can't do it right now. And, you know, having that sensitivity to how because no matter how tired I am, I don't also have to, like, look gorgeous and sing and and then, you know, run over and, you know, we have three songwriters and I have to get the songs from them in in time to produce them. And it's not, you know, they're creative people in the songs. You can't just say like, I need it by Tuesday. So it's like, I always say I'm the song doula, which is like, (laughs) you know, ways of saying to people like, could I have, and then we have Mm -hmm. one of, one of the songwriters, Jack is uh, an executive producer on our show now, and he helps me manage that process. And so, you know, we've, we've, we've come up with a process that works for us, I think, because we're two ladies, we probably have more relationship talks than most people who are running a show together. So we frequently will go into you know one of our offices and sort of check in about like how we're communicating and how we're getting things done. And but I think partly it's because you know I'm uh, might be controlling and yeah. Rachel is very opinionated. And so for us, the idea that like we've come together to work on this one project, but we we haven't, um, it it isn't that forever and ever on everything, is is a nice freeing kind of aspect for us. And we're very different. And I think it's, it's to the benefit of the show that we're very different and we think about things rather differently.
0: So we're, we're kind of headed into the end of the show. And I want to talk, you mentioned earlier, Aline, that crazy ex-girlfriend was like the lowest rated show on television. I, I calculated once it was the lowest rated TV show to ever be renewed, but it's run for four seasons. A lot of that, my understanding is that it does well on Netflix, whatever that means, because we don't know the numbers, but we're told it does well on Netflix. You know, you guys all get overnight ratings, but increasingly those numbers don't matter. Increasingly, it's like, how does it do on streaming? How's it going to do on Stars Global, you know, streaming platform or whatever? So, you know, obviously you can measure creative success, success however you want. But how do you measure like people are watching the show? Because you want to have an audience. Like, how do you measure like, I know people are seeing this and I know they're taking from it what I want them to.
1: I'm going to just answer first because it, it should be shorter because I'm barely in the middle of my first season. Mm-hmm. So we haven't survived yet. You know what I mean? And I told them early on, they explained, do you want to know the ratings or not? I go, don't tell me. I was like, just <laughs> are you going to make your decision for a second season based on that? No. Great. Then I don't need to know. So that's probably not smart, but it's, it's let me sleep. I think for me, it, it, they're little – Little triumphs when I see especially Latinx recognize oh, I've never heard that word, I've never seen that dealt with that that right now, just the feedback I'm getting on Twitter and whatever it it like it's like yes, okay we we did it for you, I mean we also are doing it for the dominant culture that you know it's a it's a coded show, but also that has been exciting. The way our community, especially brown queers, are reacting to this. And they're like, I've never seen myself, I've never seen two brown queer girls, a non binary person naked on television of size, you know?
2: For me, at this point, I've, it's probably not the smartest thing to say, but I've never looked at ratings. Mm. I just, they they seemed irrelevant to me. Even the, you know, when you would test shows before they put them on, Mm -hmm. you know, they come up with these numbers and the, the dial goes up and it goes down. And I've never paid a lot of attention to that. It seems more like a something that corporate America needs to sort of justify what they're doing. I understand that at a certain point, it was really important to a lot of people. But I think because of the nature of the shows that we've done over the years, people weren't paying a lot of attention to us anyway. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't the, the primary thing that Uh, sort of drove us and defined our success. Uh, What defined our success then and and in some ways now are the number of people that we're able to bring into the process. Mm -hmm. What defines success for me is when uh, I see someone able to send their child to college or they bought their first home or they get married and go on a vacation. Now, for me, with this particular show, Black Lightning, I've said, Success for me would be that this is introduced into the culture in a way that is is long-lasting. I remember as a kid, you know, I loved Batman. And back then, you know, you'd have the mask and it'd have the little rubber band on the back of it and it was plastic. And Batman, half of his face was covered and the other half was not. And the other half that was not was white. And I remember because I was very I was a stickler, you know, I was remember like, oh, I was looking in the mirror, and I remember saying, oh, but my hands aren't the same color as his mm-hmm. face. And so I came up with, me and my mom came up with a solution of putting on gloves. But what that meant was I was hiding my skin. And so for me, if no other little brown boy or girl, black boy or girl ever has to decide between being a superhero or hiding their skin. If I can go through Halloween this year or next year and see a black lightning or a thunder or, you know, a lightning costume and little girls have their hair braided up because that's the way thunder looks, then that's a success for me. I, I don't need a number to tell me about that. You know, that is putting something into the culture that I think affects everyone because I don't believe that only little black girls and little brown girls would do that. I think there will be some little white boys and little white girls uh, who will like Black Lightning so much that they will want to be black. Mm. Lightning. (laughs) 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 Um,
3: You know, it's interesting. You can't, I think one of the things that keeps people hooked on show business is you can't predict the outcome and whether it will catch on with people. And, you know, I remember my first couple movies were not very successful and then my third movie really was. And I remember thinking like, oh, I got it. You know, like, we know how to do this now. And it's funny, because you can make something you think is good. And it really, at the end of the day, has to be something that you believe in, and that you look at and say, yeah, that's, that's what I set out to make. But whether it catches fire with the public imagination, and who it catches fire with, is something you can't ever really predict. And you can see it in terms of like, how people respond to it on social media, but also in, in print. And, and, you know, what things last and what things break out, it's it's really a surprise. And I think it keeps, you know, every Killing Eve is a big surprise Black Black Panther is a big surprise. And it, it is. It is. But it isn't, you know, and, and what things kind of gain traction. And I was just talking to uh, Rachel about the Devil Wears Prada. There's a line that I wrote where she says florals for spring groundbreaking. And that line every single year when someone does florals for spring, it's quoted every single year. And, you know, it's that's not something that when I was typing that in my office, you don't think about what things will connect with people. And that's a lot of the fun of it. But at the end of the day, you can only make something that you consider a success on your own. Uh, and I have I have a very... um uh, gimlet-eyed view of like where things succeeded and where things didn't. And I actually have had to learn not to share it with people because, you know, I'll sort of look back on a movie I wrote or an episode we did and think, oh, this was better than that. And this, this was great and this was not. And I, it, sometimes the people around me don't want to hear that, but I, I can go through every movie I've ever written, every episode we've ever done. And, and I have an idea of where it hit, where I wanted to go. And other people might like it or not like it if you're really looking f- for outside validation for how well something has succeeded and my friend John Gatins who's a screenwriter has a great anytime he sees someone's movie he says to them you just made someone's favorite movie mm-hmm. and it's so true like the least fa- the least successful things I've ever done I still have people who come up to me and say I love that I own it I had it on PCR then I got it on DVD and I and then I bought it on iTunes you know and it's if you, if you attach to the outcome and you attach to ratings and you attach to box office, you, I think, end up getting in a very weird space creatively.
0: Well, we end every show by asking our guests some of the same questions. so I'm going to ask the three of you the same question, which is, who is the writer or director you've learned the most from, living or dead, that you never met? For me, I think it's uh, Gordon Parks. Mm. Because, you know, when you watch Shaft
2: and when you watch his movies and you look at his art, his photography, it was inspiring and and it was a conversation that he was having with everyone, but particularly African Americans. And it was so subtle. You know, when you look at Shaft, on, on the surface, it's just, you know, a private detective movie about the guy and his community. But, you know, me being a young man when that came out and seeing that image of this you know, this bold black man in a leather suit, you know, and he's sexing white women, black women living in New York and fighting for the community. That's who Gordon Parks was, you know, and you see the the sort of legacy that he's left behind, you know, uh, his his son died very early on, but his son made Superfly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so you can kind of see The sort of messaging he was sort of getting out at a very uh, early age and to travel the way that he did and have a world view in the way that he did was, was really inspiring for me. So on a lot of levels, I guess you would call him a renaissance man. On a lot of levels, that's what I always aspired to be, sort of a renaissance man in his image. And I think it was like a couple of years ago, maybe three, that they finally like on the DGA card he was he his photo was on the d g a card, and I just put it in a frame oh, yeah. it was that's like cool. it was cool, you know, but I never met him, but I feel like I know him very well, yeah, Time.
1: Milcha Sanchez Scott, hmm. so I'm come from the theater, that's my base, and um like acting was my the first thing I tried, and uh, early on, I would in Texas, I would compete with speech and debate you know but we would go we would do like a 10 minute solo and i came across dog lady her at one of her plays and i was like wait this is me this is also this girl who turned into a dog i mean i was like i can do that i can do real funny that (laughs) and it was all everything and then i read her other like seminal play roosters which was changed my life it sort of was like wait. I could do that. But then the, like in the nineties, I don't think the systems uh, theater system supported her and she's gone. She doesn't write anymore. You know, I was like, God, if, if Milcha Sanchez got we're around, I mean, she is around, but like she was starting now, maybe it would be different. We would have a ton more roosters and a ton more dog ladies and stuff. And then it was a, you know, a, a last name with a Z at the end, you know, it would give me permission, but and, and it was my favorite, some of my favorite place. And then she just didn't write again. You know,
3: when I was a kid, the main things that I consumed were Archie comics and soap operas, ABC soap operas. And I don't think that many people are aware of Agnes Nixon um, outside of that, who created All My Children, Ryan's Hope, One Life to Live. And is, is probably responsible for more hours of television than any woman in television history. And... Those stories were incredibly like Erica Kane was this great female hero, married all these people and was petite and had great fashion. And, you know, by by its nature, um, soap operas are female um, oriented. So, um, you know, the the Vicki storyline that Judith Light did on One Life to Live. I mean, those are great stories. And that was all one lady's empire. You know, she she created these indelible stories that, in you know, back in the day, everybody got home and watched and everyone knew about them and talked about them. And, um, and we don't live in a culture anymore where you can unify people with those soaps in the same way. And, you know, there's days of our lives, people, and then there's ABC people. And I was definitely an ABC person, but things that are very like more um, overt genres are good things like comic books and soap operas are good things to study when you're an up and coming storyteller. Cause their narrative moves are super clear and they get wedged in the narrative corners all the time because, they have characters that have been doing so much for so long. How do you do something new with them? How do you do something different with them? How do you reveal another side to that character? And I, I stand by all my children in the storytelling and all my children is and the performances where you have somebody playing David Canary, playing Adam Chandler and Stuart Chandler for 25 years and being incredible every day, despite having to say dialogue that was written, you know, very, very quickly. So Agnes Nixon, I think, is uh, one of the sort of the unsung heroes of television. I mean, people who are in the soap business know obviously who she is. But to create an empire like that, that unlike some of the other soaps, which were based around like more fantastical things, hers were about families and love lives and in many ways masterfully done, I thought.
0: Well, Vita is available uh, Sunday nights on Stars and on the Star Streaming app. Uh, Black Lightning and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend are currently on Netflix. They'll be back on the CW in the fall. Aline, Saleem, and Tanya, thank you for joining me.
3: Thank, thank you. you. Thank
0: you. I Think You're Interesting doesn't have a showrunner. It's just run by the contents of my brain and I never write enough of them down and everybody gets mad at me. But I am Todd Vanderwerf, the host and executive producer of I Think You're Interesting. My producer is Bridget Armstrong, and uh, she's the reason anything happens. Our executive producer of audio at Vox Media is Nishat Kerwa. Our sound designer is Miles Huell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our studio is the Rebel Talk Network studio in Los Angeles, California. And our recording engineer is Ernie Hurtado. You can rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Stitcher, wherever fine podcasts are sold. It really helps us get the word out. Even if all you do is go in and click a few stars, it helps us continue to grow the show and get great guests. You can email me at todd at vox.com. If you have something you want to say or a guest you want to recommend or something like that, you can email the whole show at ityi.podcast at vox.com itye.podcast at vox.com and you can tweet at me at tvoti We'll be back next week with another guest from the world of arts and entertainment. Somebody who... I think is pretty interesting. And until then, I don't know. If I had a TV show where everybody was singing, like you wouldn't be able to keep me off the set. I would be singing in every episode. I would be like dancing all over the place. Um, I think Aline's really missing out.